This evening I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. And we'll be considering together verse 14. Our text is Philippians 3, verse 14. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Given the brevity, you could even say the scarcity of time in this life, and given the vastness of eternity, we must aim carefully in all of our pursuits during this brief window. You think of goals that people set. Goals, our goals determine our action plan. In other words, what we ultimately want determines what exactly we will do in order to achieve that. If you want to have the lawn mowed by the end of the day or the house cleaned, it'll determine what you're going to do in ordering your time. Same is true for businesses. They have targets for sales and other things. Students have desire goals to get good grades and all of these sorts of things inform uh, what we pursue, what we, what we do. Well, last Wednesday was the last Wednesday of the year, and we considered together in uh, the preaching of God's word, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, will ye also go away? Will ye also go away? Which was suitable, especially as we reflect on uh, the year behind us. But then this evening we are at the first Wednesday and the first time that we've been together for public worship in this, this new year. We desire, therefore, to set our sights for the year ahead, and we'll then give our attention and meditation to the words of our Lord, as written by the Apostle Paul in this passage, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And there are two things we'll note. First of all, the believer's goal. So first of all, the believer's goal. Paul says, I press toward the mark. The mark, or we could say the goal. I press toward the goal, or even, if you will, the target at which I am, am aiming. And so the first question that comes to our mind is, what is the mark? What exactly is he referring to here? What is the goal at which the Apostle Paul is aiming? In other words, what does the Lord teach us in this passage? What is he saying to us? And you'll note the, the context for this particular section here in Philippians uh, chapter 3, and it begins to make it the answer abundantly clear, because this section is framed by references to the resurrection. In verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. If it any means I might reach or uh, I might arrive at the resurrection of the dead. And then you come to the end of the chapter at verse 21, who shall change our vile body that it should be fashioned or conformed like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And so he's referring to the desire for the resurrection. He's ending with this reference to the resurrection. You'll note then in what immediately precedes verse 14 and verse 11, having referenced the, the um, 
the resurrection, he then goes on and speaks about how he hasn't attained yet, but he's following after, uh, that he may apprehend something for which he is apprehended in Christ. He says in verse 13, uh, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. So again, it's reinforcing. His eyes are set out in the distance. He's looking, he's striving, he's yearning after the things that are yet to come, this resurrection. And so the mark of the prize, the prize of the high calling, was the resurrection. This is what he is pressing towards. So the resurrection and all that comes with it in the glory of the eternal state. So the resurrection is in some ways shorthand for all that will come with the resurrection, all that the resurrection entails in terms of the glorification of God's people, the consummation of their redemption, and the eternal joy that will be theirs in glory. And that, that includes, of course, as well, the rewards that the Apostle Paul so often refers to throughout his uh, epistles, the rewards that the Lord will give to his people. And so he's pressing toward the mark of the prize of this high calling, this heavenly summons, if you will, the prize of this heavenly summons. And you see the Apostle Paul expressing this all the time. You see him even at uh, the very end of his life, having nearly finished uh, his race, it's still before his mind's eye. He's still looking to it. He's still anticipating. He's still reaching for it. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, some of his last words, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And so here he is anticipating it. He's longing for it. And really this is a, a theme, this whole idea of the goal of the Christian life being the end, being glory, being heaven, being with the Lord, being in the state of, of eternal joy is something that flows all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. You think, for example, of that passage we'll be coming to in Sabbath morning soon in Hebrews 10, verse 32, when he's speaking about uh, how these Hebrews have endured a great uh, fight of afflictions, and they've gone through all sorts of reproaches, and even, we're told, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. And so here's a, here's a people in this life, in this world, and they're being spoiled of their possessions, right? These things are being confiscated, taken, or they're, they're spending them, they're sacrificing them, they're giving them for the cause of the kingdom. In either case, they're losing their stuff, their, their goods. And we're told that they underwent all of that, they endured all of that with joy. So the question is, how? How, how, does, how, does, how do these Hebrew Christians endure the loss of all of their stuff with joy? And we're told there in verse 34, they saw something vividly. 
Paul says, they knew in themselves. They knew in their heart of hearts, as it were. And they would not take their eye away from, and they would not cast away, as he charges them, their confidence, their absolute certainty in their better and enduring heavenly substance. You think of that. So they're saying, okay, all of our stuff's going. All, all the stuff that we've collected, all the stuff we've bought, all the stuff we've stored, all the stuff that we've, you know, we, we think of as our, our, our own, all that's, you know, vaporizing. But they said, we have other stuff. We have other goods. We have another substance. And you look at the language that he, he uses. He says, it's better. It's better substance than the things that they're losing. And it's enduring substance, unlike the things that they're losing. And it is a heavenly substance that they have. And so he's saying, don't, don't lose sight of that. You've had your eye on the prize. You've been pressing toward the mark. And he says, don't now let your confidence be shaken. Hang everything right where you've been hanging it, on the recompense of the reward, knowing that the Lord will indeed overwhelmingly and abundantly reward his people far beyond proportionately all their losses in this world. You should be utterly confident in these things. Right? This is the goal. And of course, the reward is proportionate to what happens in this life. The reward in heaven is proportionate to the sacrifices, to the suffering, to the service that is undertaken in this world. Less sacrifice, suffering, and service, less reward. More sacrifice, suffering, and service, more reward, all by grace, all out of the bounty of the Lord's abundant blessing. And I have preached several sermons, entire sermons on the doctrine of, of rewards, which you can reference with, with regards to that. And so this, this better substance provides abundant, present joy in all of our sacrifices here, in all of our labors here, in all that we're undertaking for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the good of his cause, that better substance, knowing it in ourselves, being absolutely confident of it, instills abundant joy, even in the midst of colossal loss. But here's the thing, you must see, you must see it by the eye of faith. You must see it in your hearts and in your mind. You must see and be absolutely persuaded that it is indeed better. You have to be able to see that it's better. Otherwise, this life will occupy all your goals. Otherwise, you will live for the substance of this world rather than the world to come. Because in your heart, in your affections, it's what seems big. And the patriarchs had this. The Old Testament saints, you know, they say, well, in the Old Testament, it was so earthy and, you know, all the temporal blessings and so on and so forth, so different from the New Testament. What hogwash this is. It's not what the Bible teaches us at all. The patriarchs saw exactly what we see here in the New Testament, in New Testament scriptures. You look at Hebrews 11, flip over a page, and there, what do you find in verse 14? 
where it says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Truly, if they are mindful of the country from whence they came out, that is here in this world, they might have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now notice a connection here. In verse 14, we're told that they're seeking, right? They're pressing toward the mark of glory, of the resurrection, of heaven. Why? Because in verse 16, they desire a better country. These two things are connected. It begins, first of all, in the soul of a person who genuinely and sincerely desires, craves, longs for, loves, wants desperately all that the Lord has promised in heaven. That desire has to be there. And when it is, then we will seek for that heavenly country. We will press, as Paul says, toward the mark of the prize of of the, whole, of the high calling. We'll come back to that eventually when we come uh, to Hebrews. But you see the point. If the enticements of this world are the things that we desire, then that will control what we seek. We need spiritual appetites, the spiritual appetite of a new man, of a new creation in Christ Jesus, of a converted person who not only sees with their eyeballs and tastes with their tongue, but who can taste and see that the Lord is good and who sees with the eyes of the soul the glory that belongs to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is so needed, is this spiritual appetite, and it, it changes everything. I mean, you, you have the example of Paul elsewhere in Acts 20, in verse 24, you know, there's all these threatenings. He says, they, they say that bonds and afflictions abide me, that that's what's coming, the Spirit says. His answer, verse 24, but none of these things move me. I'm unmoved by the bonds and afflictions. They don't, they don't derail me at all. Neither count I my life dear unto me so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of, of God. He's unmoved because his heart's set on finishing the race with joy and anticipation of the eternal joy to come. And there's so many other examples. You go back to Philippians here in chapter 3, and, and you have examples uh, given to us later on in the chapter. Uh, well, not later on in the chapter. You have examples given to us in the, in the previous chapter, chapter 2, of Epaphroditus. Look at the last verse of chapter 2. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, same language as Paul in Acts 20. To supply your lack of service toward me. He is nigh unto death. What's that mean? Verse 27 tells us, for indeed he was sick nigh unto death. He was sick nigh unto death. In fact, he had both physical problems and, and emotional problems. Because in verse 26, we're told that he longed after these Philippians, that he was in he was full of heaviness. So he's got emotional burdens that are weighing him down and a body that's breaking down underneath of him. And you would think at this point, you would think that at this point he would say, I need to put on the brakes of self-preservation. And that's the common theme, right? 
this, what, I, what I've called elsewhere the save your life model. Where, okay, I have all these limitations and all this other stuff. I can't love. I can't give. I can't serve. I can't do all these things because of X, Y, and Z. But instead of putting on the brake of self-preservation, he hits the acceleration. And lo and behold, the Lord is merciful to him and actually spares him in the process. And he's, he's raised, raised back up. Same thing with Timothy earlier in verses 20 and 21. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, their own interests, their own stuff, their own concerns, their own burdens, their own whatever. Not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Right? All of these are examples that we could continue to multiply with reference to the believer's ultimate goal. You know, we sing in Psalm 16 that we set the Lord always before us, that he is at our right hand. And then you go on to, that's verse 8, you go on to verse 11, and then he says, well, what do we find at the Lord's right hand? Pleasures forevermore. So for the Lord's people, right, they can see that having the Lord set before them, he is the one that we want. He's the one we're serving. He's the one we're seeking. He's the one we want to know. He's the one we're laboring for. We, we have an eye for him. And so we set our minds, our affections on things above where Christ is. That's where our heart is hung. That's where our mind is, is focused, is on where Jesus Christ is. Heaven is Christ. It's to be with him. You know, that, that language of... Um, Seeking and desiring that we mentioned in, in Hebrews 11, similar to Apostle Paul. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Same thing as heart, right? His heart is, is desiring the things of, of glory. And our heart and our head have to be in heaven before our feet ever reach it. You know, this is where we're abundantly satisfied, as we sing in Psalm 36, verse 8. And so the believer's goal is actually fixed on the finish line. It's fixed, it's fixed on the end. It's fixed on heaven, on glory, on the reward of being with Christ and beholding his glory and all of the joy that he has promised and all that he has laid up in store and prepared for them to overwhelm the souls of God's people. Well, that, that requires us. It requires us to engage in what we might call sanctified imagination. A more biblical way of describing it would be meditation. Meditating on all that God has revealed about the glory to come. Meditating on the future life. In order that our mind is being filled with it, so that our hearts and affections are filled with it, so that our desires are filled with it, so that we are then motivated to seek the things that last. To seek what matters most. For Paul, this is so important, he hangs his whole identity on it. I mean, he has the privilege of being a Roman citizen, which was a rarity in his circumstances. He has all sorts of other privileges in terms of the education that he's received, all sorts of other things. And he's traveling all over the place. But his identity, his, his own self-conscious sense of identity is where? You go to the, the end of... Uh, you go to the later on here in, 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 in chapter 3, and he says in verse 20, 
for our conversation could be translated, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, that's what identifies me. Heaven is what identifies me. That is my citizenship. That's who I am. That's where I belong. That's where I'm headed. That's what I live for. That's what occupies my thoughts, my pursuits, my goals, my heart, my everything. It's heaven. It is very, 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 very difficult to loosen your grip on the things of this world if you don't detach your mind from them. You're not going to loosen your grip until your mind is captivated by something infinitely superior. But when it is, then it is easy, comparatively, to let loose in terms of our heart attachments and, and our priorities and pursuits in this world, things of this world. You know, people are thinking at this time of year, rightly, it's a good thing. It's a very thing, good thing to be commended, thinking of, okay, what are our goals for, for the coming year? What are, we, what are we planning to do? What do we want to accomplish? You know, what are the things that we have in front of us for, for 2024? What this text teaches you is that all of those goals have to be tied to this. If they're not tied to this, they're unhinged. The goals have to be in one way or another. I mean, they can be the kind of goals that you think of, practical things that you think need to be accomplished, but they have to be in your mind and really, not just abstractly, tied to pressing toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Do these goals fit within that? If not, they're probably not the ones we should have. Or do they plug in tightly? to this pursuit of, of what's to come. For those who are unconverted, of course, this is yet another shot across your bow. The Bible teaches you that there is one thing needful. There are a million things to be desired, a million things to want, a million things to look at, a million things to pursue, but there is one thing that is needful. And what happens when a person gains thousands of the other millions of things that can be, can be had and miss the one thing needful? The Lord speaks with words of pity when he says, what, what are you, you going to exchange the worth of your soul for the whole world? Would you give the whole world in exchange for your soul? You would be a fool. The worth of your soul is worth infinitely more than all the world and a million worlds besides. To pursue anything that is outside of what the Lord has called us to in Christ Jesus is a colossal waste of time. So to, 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 refuse, to, hear the he, to, to refuse to hear and heed the call of the gospel, the gospel comes and the Lord Jesus Christ is set before us and, we, and we're told he is the great prize. He's the greatest of all gifts that God has ever given to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the treasure that we desperately need. You know, we would sell all in order to buy the field to have the treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, why? Because he's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's the Lord. 
He's the one that's able to take your pitiful, sinful, slimy soul, which is en route to hell, and deliver and save through his own sacrifice and shed blood and his atoning mercies and to reconcile poor sinners who come to him by faith, to reconcile them unto God. And in having Christ, we have all, including the eternal life and heaven and glory and all that it, it contains. A life without the Lord Jesus Christ is a waste of a life. But it's worse. It's a waste of an eternity. The Lord calls us to get our aim straight. For Paul, the resurrection loomed large. For many in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day and probably in most days, it's very small. It is an article of doctrine we believe in the resurrection of the dead. But it does not loom large. For the Apostle Paul, it loomed large. It overshadowed everything else to him. This was everything. This is what his whole life was spent looking forward to. And so we begin with the believer's goal. But then secondly, the believer's pursuit. What does he say about this mark? for the prize of the high calling. He says, I press toward it. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. I press, it could be translated, I pursue. In fact, it's so strong that sometimes this Greek word is used for persecute. So when it speaks about pursuing, you know, the, 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 belief, you know, the Christians, you know, it's a, it's a description of, 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 of hounding them you know, pursuing them with the, the, the end of, of persecuting them. It's, the, it's the, the, the language here. I'm pursuing, I press toward the mark of the high calling, which goes along with the words that we see previously, right? In verse 12 and 13, he's saying, I'm, I haven't apprehended it yet. I haven't seized a tight hold on this thing yet. But in verse 13, he says, forgetting those things behind and reaching forth, under those things which are before, the language is straining after, right? He's straining after the things that are before. In other words, all of that language, along with verse 14, gives us a picture with regards to the Apostle Paul of someone with a holy, heavenly obsession. He is obsessed with this. It is an all-consuming preoccupation. An all-consuming preoccupation on the end, on glory, on heaven, and so on. So the question that comes to you this evening is, where are your eyes? As you venture out into the first few days of 2024, where are your eyes? Where, where is your heart? And what exactly are you longing after? What are you straining toward, striving for? In verse 19, we're told that we are not to mind earthly things, right? Verse 19, speaking of those whose end is destruction, who mind earthly things. In contrast, in verse 13, back to verse 13, Paul's saying, but this one thing. For me, it's all about one thing. There's a simplicity in it. I am striving for the one thing. I'm pressing toward this mark of the high calling of God 
in Christ Jesus. What does all this tell us? It tells us, in terms of the believer's suit, pursuit, that the present life is not about this life. Let that sink in for a second. The present life is actually not about this life. It is to be used for the pursuit and preparation of the life to come. This life is the staging ground for the life to come. And one way I think of getting this through in terms of persuading you, think of the great proportions, right? Think of the contrasts. So you think of your life, your time, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, maybe 20 years, whatever it is that the Lord gives you. You think of that amount of time, right? You can do the math, how many months, how many days, whatever. 70 years, we'll say. Now, you hold those 70 years in one hand, and then you let, let your mind venture out into the terrain of eternity. And this is where it gets painful, right? You, you begin to think of, okay, you know, a lifetime has passed, a millennia has passed, as it were. A million millennia have passed. A trillion millennia have passed. And it still goes on. You venture out into the train of eternity and there's no end in sight because there is no end. And after a trillion millennia, you're no sooner to the end than you were at the beginning. And numbers like that just, you know, we, we, we blow a circuit and it, we just, it's all just sound to us, right? We can't even comprehend these sorts of numbers, understandably. But you should stretch yourself and do your best to take it on board. Because when you think of that extensive nature of eternity, and then you set your life against the backdrop of that, to describe it as a drop of water is like gross exaggeration. A drop of water compared to all of the oceans of the world. Well, that's, that's way understatement, right? A grain of sand compared to the whole outer space in the universe. Well, that's an understatement as well. Right? Your life is infinitesimally small. It is minuscule. And then you, you, you think eternity, one of the characteristics of eternity is permanence. It's permanent. Whereas this world is temporary. So you begin to think of that, the permanence of eternity, the extent of eternity, the temporal nature and brevity and, and, and scarcity of this, of this life. And all of a sudden, okay, now it begins to make sense that we really were created for another world. Given the amount of time, as it were, and given the permanence of all of that, we really are made for another world. And it becomes clearer to us. This life is so short, so brief, so fleeting, so fragile, so transitory, so impermanent. Vacuous. Empty. Well, that leads us to the conclusion that, which is biblical, it is impossible for this world to ever be the point of our existence. It's impossible. It's impossible for this world to ever be the point of our existence. Therefore, 
it can, it's impossible for it to ever be the point of our present pursuits. How could living for this world, how could pursuing and prioritizing the things of this world ever make a lick of sense in light of the truths that we're reflecting upon? What is permanent is the priority. And Paul got it. I press. I'm in a hot pursuit. I have a holy obsession with the mark of the, high, of the high calling, of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He sought to seize it. He says earlier, you know, forgetting what's behind. He's saying, I'm, you know, that's neglected, as it were. That is deleted, as it were, from his focus. His focus is rather riveted upon what is above, what is ahead what is to come. And so he relentlessly pursues this single goal. I will press toward the mark of the high calling. I'm a relentless pursuit of this single goal, the trophy of the heavenly summons, of the glory to come. And the fact is, nothing else could divert him. They come and tell him, as we saw in Acts 20, you know what, you got ahead? In the next few months, bonds and afflictions. He says, I don't care. It doesn't move me. It doesn't phase me one bit. I don't even count my life as something significant. None of that phases me. I'm undiverted, undeterred. I'm not going to be distracted. Nothing else matters. This one thing is what I am pursuing. Christ and what belongs to his interests and his cause and his kingdom and his glory. Paul sought it. Paul lived for it. And Paul, Paul attained it. The fact is we usually get, we often get, what we aim at. We rarely get what we did not aim at. You know, when you're, you're teaching our children to use firearms, right? We ready, aim, fire. So we, we get the, the, they have the weapon and that they, you know, learn to put their stance right. We say, okay, Ready. And then they get their grip right, they've got the hands in the right place, they lift up the gun, and then aim, right? Fingers not on the trigger yet. And they line up the rear sight with the front sight on the center of the target. And then they fire. But if you're just shooting in any old direction, you're never going to hit the target. You know, we, don't, we, rarely, we rarely get what we, what we haven't aimed for. The question is this evening, are you aiming for what God has told you to? Are you aiming? What goal rivets your mind? What goal is fueling your life that ultimately gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, if it's anything, if your big life pursuit is anything below, if it's anything in this life, then you're living aimlessly. You're misguided. Here is the believer's pursuit. Well, what does living in this world while living for another world look like? 
What does living in this world while living for another world look like? What does that actually look like? Well, we have other indicators. Jesus gave us some indicators in the Sermon on the Mount, as you well know. He gets done talking about, he says, don't act like a Gentile and be pursuing all the stuff of this world. These are the things the Gentiles seek for. He says, verse 33, uh, Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. He'll, you take care of his stuff, he'll take care of, of your stuff. Right, he's, he's saying, seek first the kingdom. Take, earlier in verse 25, take no thought for your, your life. So what does that mean? What does that look like? I mean, you, you, of course, there'll be things like um, we think of what, what lasts forever, souls. Souls last forever. Investing in souls, your own soul, and the souls of others is laying up store for the world to come. So you think to yourself, well, okay, then, then among other things, I need to be prioritizing the Word of God, right? That never, that never dies. That's not going anywhere. That's going to endure the Word of God, and my soul is going to endure. I need to get that Word into my soul. So there's going to be priorities in terms of being under the Word as it's read and preached. There's going to be priorities in terms of how much time, not whether you spend time in the Bible. You can't be a Christian and not spend time in the Bible. But how much time you spend in the Bible, soaking yourself in the Word of God. The kingdom is advanced through sowing the seed of prayer. Not only the priority of the public prayer, like prayer meeting, but also at home. You know, how much time am I giving to, to prayer, to prayer? How much and how often is that prayer joined with humiliation and fasting? How earnest am I? Am I in dead earnest? Well, it's not a matter of, of, of speculation, right? You can look at today and yesterday and the day before, and we can discover what your priorities were because they're whatever you did. And so if, if these things are not present in the proportions they should be, it's because they're not priorities in, in your life. You know, think in terms of you, you give yourself to a period of concentrated prayer and you say no to all sorts of other things that everybody else would love to be doing instead. And you love to be doing this prayer instead because you've caught a vision. You can see beyond the, the trinket and trash of this world. And you're seeing the irresistible, overwhelmingly glorious reward that is to come and all of the blessings that are attached to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so it is not a necessarily heavy thing to be pressing, pursuing this mark, giving yourself to it. There's that, of course. You think, well, what about all the other stuff in life? There's all these, these other things. You think, well, I've got to go to school and I've got to work hard and I've got to study hard in order to get a job and, and so on and so forth, and that's good. The question is, why? Why? Why do all of that? You can say, well, I have to study as under the Lord. Well, that's a good answer. What's the end game? Where are you going with this? Well, I need to get a job so that I can have a family, so I can seek to raise up a godly seed, and so that I'll have money in order to, you know, uh, fund the kingdom and the growth of the church and foreign missions and so on and so forth. All of that's, at least you're thinking clearly, at least you're thinking 
above the, the things of this world, not just to collecting cars and other things. You're thinking to yourself about what matters, but it's not limited to that either, is it? Because ultimately, in the workplace even, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you're interacting with souls that you're to be pouring yourself into for the sake of their good and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're to think, well, I have a good job that gives me um, discretionary time to be involved in the congregation. To what end? Not just to soak up for yourself, but to invest in others. All the things we heard about this past Sabbath morning. And doing all you can to in in invest in the expansion of the kingdom in people and in the church and work of, of the Lord. Right? These are the beginnings of, of what we're talking about. How can I use the gifts God's given me and the graces that God has given me? How can I maximize those for glory? How can I maximize them in ways <clears throat> that will yield the highest harvest in things that last forever and what matters most? This is the beginning of of starting to approach <clears throat> what it means to press toward the mark. It means that we, we embrace like the Hebrews did, like Epaphroditus did, like Timothy did, like Paul did. We embrace opportunities as sacrifice, never seeing them as loss, but as exchanges for great gain. Seeing them as exchanges for great gain. Sacrificing our time, our interests, our strength, our energy, our gifts, our other pursuits, our money, whatever else it is, for what lasts forever. That's called not a, a loss. If you want to use it, speak in terms of, you know, earthly terms, it's an investment that yields infinite dividends, returns for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer's pursuit as we venture out into 2024, let's be clear, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm set on fire for this one thing. I want to know Christ, as he said earlier in the chapter. I want to know as much as is humanly possible in this world. I want as much taste of all that awaits me in glory in this life as I can possibly get. As much that I can see of him and know of him and to be as near to him as I possibly can and as like him in holiness as I possibly can. Right? Our sanctification, which is by the Spirit, by grace, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, also tied to the glory that is to come. One star differeth from another. Right? We've, we've made this, been over this terrain many times before. We're not... We don't have a communist view of heaven where everybody's just flat and equal. Everybody is overwhelmingly filled with joy and blessing, but not equal. To use the illustration that I've used many times before, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards said, there are different sized cups, but every cup is full. Both things are true. What we learn here is that only by pursuing the call to die, to die to self, 
to die to the world, to die to sin. Only by pursuing the call to die will we ever truly live. We can't live as God has intended, as God has created us, as God has called us to live for his glory without pursuing the call to die. Die to ourselves, die to the world, to die to sin. All of that sounds fine, doesn't it, when we hear it? Whole nother matter. Whole nother matter when the rubber hits the road, when it's a choice between self-indulgence and doing what pleases ourselves and actually saying no, sticking the knife in, and rather choosing to do what, what actually in, entails pressing toward the mark by the grace of God and for the glory of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's what's needed. And the only way we're going to get there, the only way in which we're going to say yes to death, no to ourselves, and yes to, to the pursuits of the things that matter most, is if we can see them. If we can, by the grace of God, through his word, catch a sight, as Paul did, of the glory to come. And to, be, to know it in the depths of our soul. And to be so absolutely confident of it. That we're unbudgeable in our pursuit of it. Well, may the Lord help us to aim well in the year to come for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we come to the one who is the Lord of glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of glory and who has gone to prepare a place for his people, that where he is, they might also be with him to behold his glory and to drink in to our exquisite joy for an endless eternity, the revelation of his majesty. O Lord, give us more and more a sight of it in this life, but O grant that we would live with all of our hearts, striving and straining for that glorious day which awaits all of those who are in Christ Jesus. We ask it in his name.